Hey, welcome to the Scrum, GBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Hey, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation Peter and I had with Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell, who is at this point in time one of two candidates running for mayor of Boston. But first, Peter, I would love to get your thoughts on current mayor Marty Walsh's final state of the city speech, which he gave a couple of days ago. Well, it was a very strong speech, to say the least. Clearly, I think, the best one of his career. Um, It's an incredible capstone to a seven-year run. I say incredible because I, I think it shows a tremendous amount of political and probably personal growth during his years in office. Now, I've often been very critical of Walsh on specific issues, but then again, so was I with Menino. I think the bottom line with both Menino and Walsh is the city's in better shape when they left or when he's leaving than when they took office. In Walsh's case, the city was in pretty good shape when he took over. There is, however, a... uh, Um, A big honking exception to that, that is the state of the Boston public schools. As a a system, there are some very good schools, there are some great teachers, but as a whole, the system is, um, to use a Yiddish word, a shunda. But that said, um, Walsh's speech will linger in memories for a long time. And I fully expect him, uh, assuming he's confirmed in Washington, to come back to Massachusetts and run for higher office. Yeah, I can honestly say that the night he was elected, I said on the radio that I expected at some point he would be a candidate for governor. So we'll see. You talk about his speech showing growth. Can you think of one or two examples that jump out that highlight what you're talking about? Well, first, let me generalize. When he was first mayor, um, any hint of criticism would be greeted by uh, Mayor Walsh or his staff as um, an attempt to strangle him to death. Um, He became, throughout his his years at City Hall, Cooler, calmer, more collected. Um, He rolled with the punches. Um, He knew that in the end he would have, be able to call upon superior fonts of information and would answer the question in his own sweet time. That's a generality. To cite a recent um, and very critical issue, Adam, I would say the way in which he responded to Mr. Floyd's death. Um, He's handled the whole race issue um, aggressively for an elected official um, and with great sensitivity. Um, He also managed to turn it to his advantage, but that's what politics is all about. All right. With that, on to our conversation with Andrea Campbell, the Boston City Councilor and mayoral candidate. Let me start by asking you, you and Michelle Wu decided you were going to take the mayoral plunge a couple months ago when a lot of people thought Mayor Walsh was going to be seeking a third term. I'm wondering what it's like to have 
taken that leap. And now that the mayor has said he's going to Washington to see all these other people coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, yeah, I think I might take a look at running for mayor of Boston. What's it like to watch them do that? Well, I mean, obviously I, I'm engaging uh, a whole host of electeds and, and pushing them to, to join Team Andrea, right? And reminding them that we did exercise that courage early on, not just me, but my supporters, my team to challenge an incumbent to say, it's not about who's in the seat. It's not about who's in the race already and who will jump in. It's about looking at the moment in time we're in and saying that, I am the most qualified and the unique leader in taking on this moment in time. And it's a very personal decision, right? When deciding whether or not you should run, I would never encourage anyone not to. Um, what I am having is some very thoughtful conversations with electeds uh, across the city and saying, I hope you would join this campaign and that this campaign has always been about uh, looking at race and racism and the national reckoning we're seeing on that. Um, and saying this is our moment in time in the city of Boston to address our own painful history around those same issues and to do the really hard work of eradicating inequities and systems that affect every resident. So is there any, and if, if there were, I know you probably couldn't tell me here, but I want to ask anyway, is it at all irksome to see various other people saying, yeah, I'm going to ponder this when, again, you put yourself out there, you know the amount of work that's involved, you took a risk um, when there was a potential downside to doing it. It, it. Do you find yourself, even in your weaker moments, thinking, oh yeah, good for you. Yeah, sure, look at it, you know, but you, you weren't there, you, you weren't giving it a shot when there was risk involved. Uh, no, I mean, first of all, I am so busy, I don't have time, right? Even my weaker moments, and in my weaker moments, I'm reflecting on how I, how I, um, you know, continue to be a better human being, right? Um, I will tell you though, that folks who are joining this campaign, we are feeling such momentum, right? not only on the fundraising side, but having so many residents all across the city of Boston sign up to volunteer. And many of those folks recognize the courage um, that I exerted right back in September when launching this campaign. Um, local leaders and activists are talking about that and say, wait a minute, like, let's not forget that Andrea jumped into this race when folks said, oh, she doesn't have a chance, she's crazy. Um, but she did it because she had something to say about the moment in time we're in. She wants uh, to do something about the inequities that are persistent in the city of Boston. And she has a record of accomplishment with respect to many of them. And of course, a very painful and tragic story that connects to all of it. Um, and so folks recognize that. And now our job is to continue that momentum and to continue to reach voters all across the city of Boston. Councilor, first of all, before I um, pose my question, I wanna remind our listeners that um, before Mayor Walsh got involved with police reform, and before Mr. Floyd's death, which restructured the national consciousness, um, you, you were close to a lone voice in, in, in moving for really nuts and bolts police reform. So that's the background right. against with which I'm asking this question. As someone sitting on the sidelines, I wonder what you think about the similarities between the fact that Boston has an appointed school committee with a lot of mayoral control and um, 
it would be reveling an understatement to say that the Boston public schools are a mess. Now, I would agree that what the mayor proposed and the city council has endorsed is a real step forward for police accountability. But how much faith should me and my neighbors in Jamaica Plain have um, with a structure that has so much mayoral control built into it? And the structure of the new Office of Police Accountability and Transparency? Yes, I should have been correct. So I, I will say this, um, you are right. I have been since the very beginning uh, in many and sometimes a lone voice, at least in the elected space on the local side when it comes to policing reform. But of course, activists, residents, my predecessor, Councilor Yancey and so many others have been voices on these issues for decades. And I think I shared their frustration that it was taking too long to create greater transparency, diversity and accountability in our policing system. So if anything, I saw my work as a continuation of theirs. But I will tell you, sometimes I was in different rooms all across the city of Boston, not just in my district, which is largely Dorchester and Mattapan, um, in Jamaica Plain and Rosendale, but all across the city, and people say, oh, what are your top three issues? And I would name public safety and policing and people would look at me like I was crazy. Um, and so I, I bring that up because um, it did not, I, you know, I didn't need to see the video and the painful, tragic murder of George Floyd or to learn about the painful story of Breonna Taylor and so many others uh, to know that our department could do a lot better. Um, and so what I have pushed for since the beginning is for the council to have greater in, input, not just in policing reform and in, 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 in that system, but every system. You know, it's important that that legislative branch of government be strengthened. But specifically on the Office of Police Accountability and Transparency, the draft legislation that I crafted and, and, and sort of worked in partnership with the administration on was all about making sure that that power did not exclusively rest in the mayor's office to really push for the council to have a say in the appointments uh, to that office and those commissions, to have a say in the review process, uh, to require that the office report back to the council on its doings. Um, so really trying to strike that balance, which I think is critically important um, in, in our system of government. Checks and balances is, is near and dear. I think if we want true accountability, not just in policing reform, but every uh, system, um, including the executive office, we have to continue to think about how we strengthen the council. Let me ask you a, a, a question. Um, about you and your district and your predecessor, Councilor Yancey. Um, being an old guy myself, you know, Councilor Yancey was a fixture in the Boston political scene. And I always saw him as sort of the representative of the black blue collar working class. And when I say blue collar, I'm, I mean that in the 21st century way. I mean, um, if you could step back from the mayor's race for a second and talk about how have you viewed your role as a city councilor? I mean, there were many similarities with Councilor Yancey, but am I onto something or crazy about saying you're, you essentially represent a big swath of the black working class? 
Yes, of course, they live in my district, but um, I think, you know, for, first and foremost, I love my district, District 4. Um, it is an honor and privilege to, to serve them, and it has been. Um, this district is incredibly diverse, even though it's predominantly district of color, diversity in terms of job uh, uh, background, personal, professional. We have a diverse immigrant community all across the, the district. Um, and, and, and folks who are passionate about civic engagement and being at the table when crafting solutions to issues. We have between 45 and 50 civic associations and resident leaders in my district. I often say that most folks don't know that, right? You look at uh, District 4 and folks often report on it from a deficit lens, you know, violence, poverty. Yes, that exists here, but you also have residents who want to step up, do the necessary work of making sure their communities uh, have all the resources, their resources they're entitled to um, and that their communities are the healthiest for everyone. And so I have always looked at my job as being one, uh, really sort of required me to sort of use their stories and their personal experiences to really highlight the inequities in housing, education, environmental injustice, all of that, to use the stories of the residents because there are powerful stories that exist in this district and to take that all across the city of Boston so folks have a deeper understanding of this community and some of the inequities that these residents are grappling with. The second piece was always, of course, working in partnership. I mentioned those resident leaders because I often say that the folks who are living with the problems have the solutions. We just have to make sure that we invite them to participate and be at the table when crafting policy and, uh, and invite them at the beginning, not the end. So I see the, uh, my role as co-creating with these residents working in partnership. And we have done, I think, a phenomenal job of that in District 4. And, and then lastly, you know, being bold and courageous on transforming systems and changing policy that directly uh, address those inequities across a whole host of systems. So not just in policing, education, health disparities, access to green space, you name it, and making sure that that policy is bold in such a way that people can feel and see the impact in their lives. Um, it's one thing to pass something. It's another thing for someone to actually feel um, like it's going to affect them in some meaningful way. I wanna go back to police reform for a second. We're talking on the day that Mayor Walsh is gonna be giving his last State of the City speech. And I have no doubt that he is gonna be talking up his efforts on police reform when he makes those comments. I'd love to get your take on what the mayor has done so far and how what he's done so far when it comes to changing the way the BPD works stacks up against what needs to be done ultimately. Uh, maybe the best way to do it is to ask you to give him a, a letter grade for his reform efforts to date, but feel free to answer however. You don't, you don't need to do that if you don't want to, although I'd be curious about what your grade would be. So I, I applaud the mayor and, and the task force, right? There were some incredible individuals that stepped up to serve on that task force, right, on a volunteer basis, um, who put forth very thoughtful recommendations uh, with respect to policing reform. And the Office of Police Accountability and Transparency is one of those recommendations. Um, and I think my frustration with the mayor has always been that it took too long to get these things done. You know, on issue after issue, whether it is policing reform, education, um, the, uh, the inaction is what prompted me to jump into the race back in September. 
Um, but that being said, we are moving in the right direction. And uh, his leadership with respect to getting this Office of Police Accountability and Transparency done should be applauded. Um, but there's still more work to do. I've been reminding residents that we have to continue to implement that, set that office up. There's still a lot more to be done on demilitarizing our police, um, have an ordinance that the mayor vetoed that Councilor Arroyo and I filed on this very issue. Um, we are going to continue to push that. We still have a lot more work to do to ensure that we are addressing the root causes of violence, poverty, economic opportunity. Um, the police alone will never be able to solve the violence issues in the city of Boston. And so there are conversations around how we reduce the overtime budget in our police department and redirect those resources to root causes of violence. That has yet to really, uh, the city has yet to really take meaningful steps in that regard. So there's still a lot more work to do there. And then on mental health, other issues as well, critically important. And lastly, I'll say transparency. I have been pushing for years for there to be a public safety dashboard that shows us not just the stop and frisk data, our diversity numbers. We're still predominantly a white male department. Um, how we spend our money, you name it. Um, and we still have yet to see that actually implement, implemented. I know they're moving in that direction. So that is major. You can't solve the issue if we are not transparent about the problem. Given all that, the mayor has said previously that Boston has, as he puts it, the best police department in the country. Do you agree with that assessment? Yes. All of our departments are the best. I think Boston is the best. And I don't just say that because I'm from the city. I love the city of Boston. And by many metrics, the city of Boston is a leader when it comes to community policing. You know, our commissioner often talks about President Obama lifting up the work of our department. Obviously, our healthcare institutions, our public universities, all of that is true. Where I want us to complete the picture, though, is the fact that there are residents and communities of color that don't feel connected to that success or the promise of the city of Boston. And even if we are excellent, we can always be better. I am frequently telling the commissioner, particularly of the police department, we can always be better. We can be more transparent. We absolutely can be more diverse. We can be more accountable and we can set up metrics um, and systems to hold ourselves accountable in a more transparent uh, way. So we can always be better. And I think the residents who are pushing for reforms are not saying our officers aren't doing an excellent job and are not valuing their sacrifice. They are, but they're saying, even if we're excellent, we can always do better. Right, I mean, the GBH News poll that was conducted for us by um, Mass Inc. polling uh, surprised many of my colleagues because while there was um, solid support and uh, demand for, for, for police accountability. There was also basically widespread support for the police too. And I, I don't think a lot of non-residents can understand that those two things can coexist at the same time. They're flip right. sides of the same coin. But having made my little speech, I want to ask you about the Boston schools. To me, for a as a, an ex-Boston public school parent, my kids are now grown and moved on and received mm -hmm. an excellent education. But I'm not sure everyone in the system does. And I find it curious that the Boston School Committee has become, from the days of Mayor Menino, 
effectively an arm of the mayor's office, exercising very little independent judgment. Now, I know that feedback goes back to the mayor's office from the, from the school committee, um, and that's not something the public really is aware about. But I don't think e even a Boston chauvinist like you would claim the Boston public schools are among the best in the, the country. What do we have to do to get the Boston schools moving again? So I, I first have to start by saying I care deeply about education. I often say, but for the grace of God and my BPS education, I wouldn't have gone off to a Princeton University, a UCLA law school and be quote unquote successful. But for me, why education is so critically important and personal is I know that this system failed my twin brother, failed uh, so many of my peers and continues to fail thousands of Bostonians all across the city of Boston. The reason I ran for office in the first place is because my twin brother, Andre, and this month actually, this week will be nine years since he passed away, you know, passing away while pretrial detainee in the custody of the Department of Correction, which oversees our prisons here in Massachusetts, as a result of receiving inadequate health care. He had a disease called scleroderma, didn't get adequate health care, passes away in that system when he's only 29 years old. And I asked, how do two twins born and raised in the city of Boston have such different life outcomes? BPS is one of the reasons. I look back at the schools he attended that did not have adequate resources, did not have after-school programs, which I had, did not have an opportunity to get you a job. Certain schools, including Latin school where I attended, you could go into an office and get a job. And so I have said for a long time that while BPS may be excellent in many instances and by many metrics, Latin school, excellent across the country. It's probably internationally known. If you look at students of color, English language learners, special needs students, we continue to fail, not just them, but everyone. Literally the way our system operates today, it is the luck of the lottery. I don't care what neighborhood you live in, what demographic, you're lucky if you get a pre-K seat, you're lucky if you get a good elementary school, you're lucky if you get a good middle school, you're lucky if you get a good high school that will prepare young, young person for the jobs that exist now and the jobs of the future. And so I put out a plan I didn't just say I'm gonna talk about the problems almost two years ago. And I specifically called it action for Boston children, keyword action, because I was frustrated with the inaction by so many players. And I said, one, let's start with early ed. Let's make it universal. Let's define it from birth to five years old. Let's make sure parents know all the resources that are available to them in their families. And then let's close those gaps immediately. And we absolutely can do that, particularly in this moment in time when people are stepping up to have a greater impact on childcare and that and childcare and the economy. Two, let's immediately expand access to quality schools. I live in Mattapan with my two beautiful boys. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. You have a 5% chance of getting into a high quality BPS school. Certain downtown neighborhoods, it's 80%. We could immediately change that by reworking the, the assignment uh, process. Third, I said high schools, they need to be redesigned. Exam schools are not the answer for everyone. And we have so many incredible high schools that are doing great work with limited resources, limited human capital, and are not being equitably invested in. We should be redesigning all of our high schools to create pathways into jobs, whether it's vote, vote jobs, the trades, technology, the green economy. 
if classics is for you, well, then Latin school is for you. That's a classical education. It doesn't work for everyone, but we can redesign that system. There are reports that have existed for years that we can act upon. And then lastly, the central office, the district needs to be more transparent. The power that rests in that office, we need to redirect back to the schools, back to families, so that they feel like they have a seat at the table in changing our system so it works better for them. Um, I'm gonna continue to push that because this is near and dear. I don't care who you are, education is critical to every young person's success in the city. Well, one very quick question. Um, a yes or no, if possible, would you support the return to an elected school committee? So right now I'm reviewing a few different proposals. The current structure doesn't work. And there are proposals, of course, around elected. There are proposals around hybrid. Um, I wanna to continue to engage more people on that because there are many folks who have different pros and cons views of that. Um, but the current structure of just an appointment by the mayor is absolutely unacceptable. It doesn't work. Can you tell us a bit more about your brother Andre's story? Because I know that his untimely death was a big part of why you got into politics, but I don't know the details of his life and how he came to the point that he came to, and even sort of what kind of guy he was. You've probably talked about that elsewhere. I just, I, I don't know those things. So for me and for other people who might not know that stuff, can you talk about who Andre was and, and the course that his life ended up taking? Absolutely, and I appreciate the question, um, Adam, because you know I often say I talk about him all the time as the reason um, that I got uh, into this work. And it was a tragic death that no one really has called to say like what happened there and should we be investigating the fact that he was uh, a pretrial detainee um, in the custody of the Department of Correction, of course, which oversees our prisons for two years and had uh, scleroderma and as a result of receiving inadequate healthcare, literally fighting for two years to get him adequate healthcare, passed away while in that system. Um, and I always thought, you know, this is troubling and that people actually continued, of course, to suffer in our prisons right now, even with COVID. Um, but Andre was a bright light. I often say he was smarter than me. He was absolutely funny. He was hilarious. Um, he was handsome. He was beautiful. Um, he was my best friend, right? Not just twins, you know, we weren't just, some people say, oh, you're disconnected because you're twins. No, we were extremely close because we had gone through a lot of trauma together. You know, when we were eight months old, our mom died in a car accident, going to visit our father who was incarcerated at the time. And my father was incarcerated for the first eight years of our lives. And so Andre and I, and my older brother, we bounced around, we lived with relatives, we lived in foster care. But at times, you know, my older brother was in different places. It was always important that we keep the twins together. So through that roller coaster of trauma, Andre and I were always together, um, sort of protecting one another as best we could through that great instability. Um, we started off at Boston Public Schools together. We went to the Blackstone in the South End, um, which was up the street from where we lived. Um, and then at some point I went, started going to different schools. You know, I eventually went to the Harvard, Kent and Charlestown, the Bradley in East Boston, um, the Timothy and Roxbury and then Latin school Andre instead um, started going to, you know, when he got in trouble, for example, um, to the McKinley School. And the McKinley School, you know, is a great institution in helping our young people 
deal with various issues. But I often say when, on, when Andre was getting into trouble was because of trauma at home. And I instead was like, young lady, you go sit in the back of the classroom and, and take a break and come back. He was often excluded or disciplined or expelled or suspended, um, did not get the supports I think he deserved. And I will tell you, I come across teachers all the time who knew Andre, who taught Andre. Um, recently was talking to Mr. Isham, who was a teacher at the McKinley School. I was visiting their class. Um, he was Andre's teacher. And he talked about, you know, he was a special, special young man. Um, and, you know, I want to support you in the work you're doing because I don't want more Andres. It devastated him to hear about Andre's death. Um, Dr. Linda McIntyre, who was the former headmaster of the Burke High School, Andre went to the Burke. She knew him, you know, she was his teacher. And I remember when we first reconnected, she talked about how special he was. And so for me, you know, this, this is a very emotional time in many ways because the 14th is the day he passed. It'll be nine years this, this year. I, I have always said that my public service and my, the work of being an elected public servant has always been grounded in his story of making sure that we don't continue to get disparate life outcomes. And I truly believe in the city of Boston with all of the resources that we have here that we don't have to continue to get those disparate life outcomes um, and that we can change the outcomes of so many folks if we do the hard work and are courageous of talking about inequities, talking about racial injustice, um, and then doing the courageous work of saying enough is enough. And so he is near and dear, he is special. Um, but he, the biggest thing is he was a jokester. You know, he loved to laugh and joke um, and, and, and you know, he was special. When he was in pretrial detention, what was he charged with? A whole host of charges and quite serious. And I remember him calling me and saying, you know, I was in law school at the time. I was about to graduate and he was supposed to come to my law school graduation. And he said, you know, it's, it wasn't me. I, I was arrested for these whole host of things. Um, and I said immediately, Andre, what about your health? Because he had been living with scleroderma and doing really well for years. I said, what about your health? And I just, something just told me that this system, our prison system is not going to do its best to make sure that he got what he, was he, what he deserved and needed. And I, I often say, it really didn't matter though, what he was charged with. At the end of the day, he was a pretrial detainee. He hadn't gone to trial for anything. He hadn't been convicted of anything. And I think the reason he did not receive adequate healthcare is because we do not view those who are behind the walls um, as human. We don't see the humanity in these individuals and we're having the same conversations right now with those who are incarcerated who are suffering from COVID-19 and COVID-19 spread. And we're doing very little to respond in, in a quick and swift manner to ensure that the, the spread we see in those institutions doesn't of course come into the community. We're dragging our feet on that. Um, and it's for the same reason that folks drag their feet with respect to Andre, they didn't see the humanity in him. And of course I, I always do. I'm sorry, I, um, sorry to, to step on you there. I have to ask one more question about Andre. Before he passed away, did he view the divergence in your two life stories in a way similar to, to the way you view it? Did he feel like he had ended up in this, this bad place because the system broadly speaking hadn't afforded him certain opportunities or had responded to him in a certain way. I'm just wondering about the extent to which 
I guess your conception of the way Boston works differently for different people was shared by him. He absolutely shared my views. And if anything, I had to be more open-minded to his views of what it was like to be not only black, but a black man and a young man growing up in the city of Boston, because we did have different experiences. And when I was younger, I may not have understood it, but later in life, I did start to understand when he talked about, you know, walking home from school and being stopped by a police officer for no apparent reason and the effect that had on him. He maybe couldn't process it when he was in his teens, but later in life, the effect that had on him. Um, talking about how he was disciplined in school and how it was different from me. I didn't understand it at the moment in time, but later in life, we talked about that more. And as when I became an education attorney and was representing students in these types of cases, school discipline cases, I really started to see the differences. Um, so he absolutely was aware. We were able to talk about it, but I don't know that he stressed it. You know, Andre was all about one, let's get some justice, 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 justice. But also he was so proud of me and now I'm gonna get emotional. He was proud of what I was able to accomplish. He was, a proud, he was proud that I was able to go to a Princeton University, of course. He was proud that I was going to graduate from law school. And he was deeply disappointed that he could not be there at my law school graduation. Um, and so I know he continues to be proud of me when I need to pull at some strength to fight the good fight. I draw upon his spirit. I think about him all the time. Um, and I roll up my sleeves to do the work. And I will say one thing that's critically important to me too when thinking about Andre is how I show up in this work. I see the humanity in everyone, regardless of their circumstance or what they're going through. And I, I exercise radical empathy um, because I know what it feels like when people do not see the humanity in someone who may be struggling. Counselor Andrea Campbell, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, good luck in the coming weeks and months as you run for mayor of Boston. Thank you both. And I appreciate you guys taking the time. And to the listeners, you know, we're continuing our momentum and absolutely looking forward to connecting to every voter across the city of Boston to earn your support. So thank you all. Stay safe and healthy. Asking for the sale. Very good move for a politician. <laughs> Peter Kadzis, when we booked Andrea Campbell as a guest, we still didn't know Marty Walsh's plans. Now that he is headed to Washington, how do you see the mayor's race unfolding from here on out? <laughs> well, I'm going to go with my gut, some of which is based on reporting, some of which is just based on um, my intuition. Um, I think the city will be able to avoid holding a special election. That means that Council President Kim Janey will enjoy a very comfortable several months as acting mayor. I think, I will predict, that she enters the race, although I have no hard evidence to support that. Um, I think Michelle Wu is in an excellent position at this moment. Organizationally, she's very strong. The recent endorsement by Elizabeth Warren and the Sunrise Organization are going to give her a lot of uh, feet in the ground, fingers on the keyboard, voices on the phone banks. Um, I think as listeners uh, will have heard for themselves, Andrea Campbell is less well-known citywide, but 
I think she will be a formidable candidate. And there's going to be a bunch of other people who jump in. I mean, I, I sort of hate to engage in gender stereotyping or referring by gender, but is a race for mayor of Boston complete without at least one white guy running? Um, by the way, if one doesn't throw his hat in the ring, that in and of itself is at least an historic footnote. So you and I and political junkies everywhere are going to have uh, some very interesting weeks and months ahead. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Big thanks to Andrea Campbell for joining us, and as always, to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us if you have a second, and talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. And Peter, you are? At Kadzis, capital K, lowercase a-d-z-i-s. The Scrum is a production of GBH News. We'll talk to you again soon.